0: All of you. There we go. Um, Happy Labor Day. Looks like we got some people who are traveling today, but those of you who are hardcore are here. So glad that you are. And then you can tell your friends that you were hardcore because you went to church and they didn't. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, uh, it's Family Sunday, so kids, I'm glad to see uh, some of you in here too. That's really cool. Um, I'm going to be finishing off our summer series with King David uh, next week, but we're doing a three part series specifically on the story of Bathsheba. Um, And there's kind of a reason for this. First of all, I think there's three parts to the the David and Bathsheba story. First, there's the the sin, then there's the cover-up, which we're gonna talk about today, and then we're gonna talk about the confrontation or the conviction that David comes under next week. And there's some obvious lessons in this story, and then there's a whole bunch of not-so-obvious lessons. But needless to say, I think Holy Spirit has a lot to tell us um, through this particular uh, narrative. Um, but also, and I think this is really interesting, is that there's a shift that goes on in the story. So when we, when we start the David narrative, um, you've got this section where we talk about David before he's king. He's anointed, he has some exploits, he does some amazing things, um, but he's not made king. In fact, he's waiting to be king. And then he becomes king. That's kind of what we've been talking about this uh, entire summer. And then you have this story of David and Bathsheba, and there's a shift again in the narrative. Where we're not just talking about David's um, political and military career, but we're actually focusing now on his family. And, And I've said this before and I'll say it again. David is a horrible father. He's just just lousy at it, and uh, not the best husband either. And and so there's there's this this distinct shift that happens from shepherd boy, man on the run, to king. We talked about that earlier this summer, and now the shift happens again almost as abruptly. It's like you've got one one chapter where everything changes, and, and this is that chapter where we, we begin to talk about David and kind of his family and the royal household more than we're talking about his politics. So understand that that's kind of how the storyline is moving. Um, and last week, we read how David got himself into some trouble. Not some trouble, he got himself into a lot of trouble. Uh, he uh, sent his army off to war, and then he was up in the late at night, and he saw a pretty girl. Maybe he looked where he wasn't supposed to be looking. Maybe he stared just a little too long. But the long and short of it, and this is the PG-13 movie because it's, it's uh, Family Sunday, is that there's a little horizontal mambo and Bathsheba's going to have a baby, right? And all of a sudden, things are, are, are different again because they've committed an adulterous sin, now what? And that's the question. We left it there last week. It was just the fact that Bathsheba sent word to David and said, hey, guess what? I can imagine how that conversation went. <clears throat> so now we're going to pick up the story and we're going to talk um, about um, the aftermath of that, or at least the immediate aftermath. So the bottom line here is David was complacent. He did what he wasn't supposed to do and he sinned. And frankly, Bathsheba's uh, role or her part in all of this is quite debatable. I'm just going to say that up front. So let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you have your Bible or Bible app, you might want to punch that in. Uh, otherwise, I should have it up on the screen for you. Uh, we're going to read through I'm going to try to make some comments as we go along, and then I have a thought to offer at the end. So here we go. <clears throat> Remember, Bathsheba just let him know that she's going to have a baby. So David sent this word to Joab, that's his general um, who is out in the field with his army. Send me Uriah the Hittite, that's Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Yeah, real casual stuff, like, so how you been, kind of a thing. Because there's this elephant in the room. That only he and Bathsheba know about at this particular point. Now, make no mistake. David calls for Uriah from the front to bring him home because this is a cover-up. There's no other way to describe it. There's there's no there's no point in trying to sugarcoat it. It's that we we've got to do something and we've got to do something uh, very quickly because <clears throat> they basically have nine months to fix this. Fix this, whatever that means. So this is a a cover-up. It just seems like in today's world when we're reading about one cover-up after another, it's like, oh yeah, one more time. Yeah, things haven't changed that much, folks. I mean, human beings are pretty much the same as they've always been. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So if Uriah and Bathsheba spend a little quality time together while he's home from the war, then the problem might just go away, more or less. At least the parentage of the child might be questionable, but you know what? No one has to know. No one has to know. If we just, you know, a little hook up here, it'll be great. No problem. But that darn Uriah, doggone him, he has to go and act with some integrity and mess up the entire plan. Because what does he do? Well, he goes and he stays with the servants in David's household, he doesn't go home. So imagine this, he comes home from the front, he has a conversation with David, but instead of going home to his wife, as was the plan, as was supposed to happen, he goes, no, no, I'm going to stay with the uh, royal household. And look what he tells the king, this is what he tells him, very clearly, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. That's, that's what we call integrity. He sees what his brothers-in-arms essentially are having to deal with, and so he says, "Why, why, why should I get special treatment when they're all dealing with this? So not only does he do the right thing for the right reason, his actions stand in absolute stark, sharp relief against David's actions. David was complacent, but Uriah acted with honor. And he really he really points out what David should have done. Because remember, in the very first part of this, it says it was the springtime when kings go off to war. When kings go off to war. And yet, at the very end of that same passage, it says, and David stayed in Jerusalem. So the honorable thing would would be to lead his army instead of just sending them out. He was complacent and Uriah showed him showed all of us, frankly, how he should have behaved. So David gets this great idea. He goes, okay, so he didn't do what I wanted him to do. Couldn't manipulate him into that. Let's try something else. So he gets him drunk. This is a really interesting passage, kind of like this. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because you you read the the words here and you're like, oh, okay, that's fine. No, no, let's put this in context. Let's put some modern language on this. Let's, Let's see what's really happening here. I love this. Even drunk, Uriah shows more honor than the king. I mean, you want to talk about the author rubbing his nose in it, this is where it's happening. Even drunk, he knows better. David was perfectly sober when he had his indiscretion, whatever that might mean. And here Uriah is showing all of us this is the way it should be. Even drunk, he has more honor than the king at this particular point. So, what does David do? Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Let's be clear. Let's be clear what's happening here. Uriah gets sent back to the front, having foiled David's plan, not once, but twice. And he's carrying with him his own letter of execution. I mean, let's be clear about this. And of course, Uriah doesn't know it. And just what, two verses later, um, he's dead. David's problem dies on the battlefield. Now there's something else that's quite interesting here and I want to point this out because it struck me. David sends this note to Joab. Earlier in 2 Samuel chapter three, Joab, um, well he had a little argument with another general, a rival. Ends up killing him. Now Joab's a fabulous military commander. And so David doesn't want to lose him. And so David's punishment for Joab, I think this is really interesting. David's punishment was to publicly condemn him, and he pronounces a curse over Joab, over Joab's family. A curse. This is what David does. In some respects, Joab's murder of his rival could be justified on Old Testament grounds. It's not an argument that I want to—that's not a hill I want to die on. But you might be able to make that make that argument. And here it is: David now sending this letter, murderous, premeditated letter to Joab. There is a sick irony here. Do you agree? The very person that David cursed, he is now asking for his help in murdering his own rival. I don't know about you, that kind of makes me sick to my stomach a little bit. When you realize the characters that are in play here and what their backstories are, you realize that David has now taken someone that he stood in judgment over and has made him an accomplice to his own sin and crime. It's fascinating, it's sickening, it's just awful. It's funny to me though, um, how the human condition, or I should say the human instinct, is almost always to hide first. You know, when something goes wrong, the first thing we wanna do is hide. Um, have you ever noticed that when you've said something, you, when you really stuck your foot in your mouth or you've written an email and you hit send when you, you probably shouldn't have <clears throat> or sent that text message or whatever, you know, have you ever noticed that the last person on earth that you want to talk to is the person you sent the message to or the person you are talking? Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, yeah, I don't want to talk to that person. I can't look them in the face. Yeah, right. There's a certain amount of shame, there's a certain amount of embarrassment that's all a, a part of that, but there is the sense that we kinda wanna hide. And, and the truth of the matter is, we know this is human instinct because we've seen this from the very beginning, the very beginning of, of, of the narrative. This is Genesis chapter three. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to, to the man, where are you? And the way that this, this um, uh, uh, sentence, this, um, this particular passage is worded, the construction in Hebrew is that he's walking in the cool of the day as if it were a, uh, something that was continuing. It was a very common thing for him to do, that this was just one of many. This was a, uh, a, a normal part of the practice that David had with, with Adam and Eve, or um, well, God had with Adam and Eve. See, we were talking about David, and I got mixed up. No, but that God had with Adam and Eve, and he's, this, is, this is a common thing. And so when they don't show up, he's like, hey, where are you? It's God. He knows what happened. But read the rest of the story. He, meaning Adam, answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I hid. And I really like this part because God kind of calls it out and He says, Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Well, yeah, that's why I hid. It wasn't really, you know, I was afraid of you. Why? Because I had done something wrong. So whenever we have that sense of fear, when we have that sense of, of um, kind of inner condemnation, when we know that we've done something wrong, we want to hide it. It's part of the human condition. I, th- th- this is part of what we call original sin, and we're all born into it. And I know this because I love it when, you're, when, you're, when you have kids and the door's closed and they say things like, from the other side of the door, don't come in here. Uh-huh, yeah. Or sometimes it's just a little too quiet in there, isn't it? That's a tip that you got to go investigate. So, it's very true. But that that that's the case for this, I think. I think this is an, an important thing for us to consider, is that um, human beings, we have this inner desire to hide when we've done something wrong, or to try to cover it up, or to deny it, or to lie over it, but any any way possible to distance ourselves from that discomfort. And yet, there's something else in this passage that I think is going on, I think that it's, that's really worth uh, paying attention to. So it's not just about the human condition, but there's also another piece of this, a lesson that we can learn. And I think the New Testament writer Paul actually illuminates this. Um, he writes to the church in Rome something very specific. Now I wanna be careful with these verses, I'll explain why as we go along. But in Romans chapter one, there's a progression. There's something that we need to see. I wanna read this. Romans one, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now I'm editing this for space and I'm editing it for for time. But I want you to see the highlights. We're gonna skip the stone across the um, the surface of, of the scripture here. So the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, they committed some idolatry, right? That's what Paul's talking about here. But he goes on. Therefore, God gave them over in the, sinful, uh, to the, or in the sinful desires of their hearts. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Okay, so we, we see this progression that they chose against God. And so God, uh, um, you know, basically allows them um, to have their way because God doesn't violate our free will. And he's addressing harshly those who have chosen against God. Now, um, I want to keep this PG-13, so I've, I've, I've um, edited some pieces of, of this out. Uh, you can read the chapter, I highly suggest you do, because it's very interesting to read Romans chapter 1. But keep going, verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. Okay, God's like, you know, if you don't want to pay attention to me, that's fine. Um, here's the result. It's what we call in parenting natural consequences. It allow the natural consequences. Things like gravity and heat will pretty much discipline, um, discipline all of us if we just allow things to happen naturally. But so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Although they know God's righteous decree, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Oh my gosh, that sounds like 21st century America, doesn't it? I gotta be honest. There are things now where black is white, and white is black, and right is wrong, and wrong is right, I, I just. But the word tells us that we shouldn't be surprised. This is what happens. It feels to me like when I'm reading through Paul's words here, and and if you read through it yourself, I think you can see it. There's almost an amplification. It starts in one place and just expands out from there. Does that make sense? And it seems to me that what emerges out of this particular passage, at least one of the things that we can say, is that the consequent of sin is more sin. If sin is unaddressed, it almost always becomes more sin. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? Nod your head so I know you're awake. Okay, good, excellent. More sin. More sin. It expands. And I want you to consider that. And maybe you know somebody who's like this. You know someone who, maybe they have like a substance abuse problem. Okay, maybe, maybe that, that's an issue for them. But have you noticed that it's never just a substance issue problem? That there's always usually some financial issues there on top of it and those financial issues and the substance abuse problem when they're together cause them to do other things that they don't want to really be doing. And usually if you've got financial issues and a substance abuse problem, there's almost always relationship problems. And which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know, I don't care, it's all sin and it just continues to expand. Does this make sense? Yeah. It's almost like this domino effect. Um, there's this, this principle out there, like begets like, right? So, um, you know, if you, if you have uh, two, two chickens, a rooster and, and a hen, and they get together, they're going to produce more chickens. They're not going to produce like donkeys, right? Like begets like. When you plant a seed in the ground, if the seed is say an apple tree, you're going to get an apple tree, you're not gonna get a peach tree. Like begets like, it's a principle. The same thing is true is that if you have sin, sin begets sin. This is a principle, think about it. This domino effect happens and it's, it just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. Now I'm not claiming to understand all of this, I really, I don't, I, I just am trying to make the observation. And it's certainly true for what we see in the life of David, what starts in adultery ends up in murder with accomplices. I cannot think of any sin that doesn't affect someone else at some level. None. Every sin has consequences for the people around you at some level. Now it can be varying degrees. Mileage may vary, but the point is is that well, I'm only hurting myself. No, you're not. You're not there's more to it than that, and there's almost always this expansive domino effect that happens within sin, especially if it's um, unaddressed, and the consequent of sin is more sin, very often, like begets like. Now, I got a little worked up there, didn't I? Yeah, and it's a little warm in here, right? And it's a little depressing to think about. I mean. Here's the thing. This this is David. This is the man after God's own heart, right? I mean, that term we've learned is actually an idiomatic phrase that means that David was loyal. He was loyal to God. He was loyal to God, and this is what he did? (sighs) There's that little part of me that says, what hope do I have? I mean, he's a man after God's own heart. What am I going to do? I mean, I'm nowhere near that. And and if he's going to fall that hard and that fast, what about me? What about my condition? What chance have I got? Well, here's the good news, and there is some good news. (laughs) God happens to know human beings. He he knows human beings in general. And here's the most beautiful thing I can say to you all day today. He knows you specifically. Specifically knows you. He understands that. He knows what you're capable of. And he loves you anyway. And here's something else for you to consider. He not only loves you, he likes you. Sometimes I think we forget that you can love somebody and not like them. You can ask my wife about that sometime. <laughs> but we all do that. We can love somebody with our whole heart, and yet sometimes I don't like you very much. But here's the thing about God. God loves you and he likes you. He might not like the things that you do, but it's not because that you're necessarily offending him as it is, is that you are doing it in detriment to yourself. And God doesn't want that for you. God wants the best for you. He wants the best for his creation because he's the creator. And he knows you and he loves you and he likes you. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. We've all got junk because the world has fallen and broken and no one gets out untouched. No one. So we've all got junk. We've all got stuff. But this is why he sent Jesus. I mean, this is the whole point to it. He understands the human nature. He understands that we need some help. And so what does he do? He sends us Jesus. And Jesus shows us the nature of God, which is grace and mercy and deep love and even like. That's the God. So sometimes around here we talk about this idea of come as you are, but don't stay that way. You know, we think that God has some things for each person customized tailored couture bespoke just for you in your discipleship in your following of Jesus and he's he's got good things so i don't know maybe today it's one of those days where you're feeling the weight of something you're not proud of let's just call it what it is you know let's just say maybe you got some sin you're carrying around i don't know it may be a hurt, maybe a habit, maybe a hang up, it may be something else. I don't know what it is, but here's one thing I do know. I know that God knows. I know that he knows what it is. And 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 the, the beautiful thing I, I I want you to hear me say this because I think this is so important for us. The same God who walked with Adam and Eve is calling out to you. Where are you? Where are you? That question echoes down through the millennia because it's not just a question to Adam, it's a question to all of us. Whatever it is that you're hiding, whatever it is you're not proud of, whatever it is that you would just like to distance yourself from, God knows. And he's still asking you, where are you? Look, if you're gonna distance yourself from the discomfort, I get that, but don't distance yourself from God. Don't do that. Because he's asking, where are you? Maybe you're watching the dominoes start to fall. Maybe you're not. I hope not. I really do. But wherever you are and however you're feeling and the experiences that you're having, I want to give you something to do, okay? Because I don't know about you, sometimes I can't I can't just hear something, I gotta do something. I gotta feel it in my body. I, not just in my, my, my mind. And I'm so thankful that, that Jesus before he died gave us this ancient ritual. You know, we've got these little chalices here. They're pretty cool, right? <clears throat> and this represents something that, that Jesus did. And I, I, I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time now. But when, when we take this thing called communion, it ties us back all the way to Jesus himself, because this is something Jesus said, do this. But it also connects us to the rest of the Christian world because every Christian does this. So you're not connected to history, you are connected globally. What a beautiful thought that the same God who is calling after you, where are you, is calling after everybody that way because his heart is that big, his love is that deep, that he can handle all of that. So we're going to take communion together. And um, this is for you and God. So Dan's going to come and he's going to um, help us sing one more time. And while we're singing, when you're ready, take the elements And maybe you might want to check in with God about whatever it is that's bothering you. Might be a good time to do that. At Thrive Church, we have what's called an open table. That means that if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. We want you to be part of this. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just let it pass by. Nobody's going to look at you funny. There's some evidence to suggest it might be detrimental for you to take it if you're not a follower of Jesus. So, So don't put yourself in that situation. But if this is something that you profess, to be a follower of Jesus, oh my goodness. This is here, this is for you. We want you to experience this with us. So on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus, um, he took some bread, which would have been really common on the table, especially under those circumstances. And after he gave thanks, he, he broke it and he passed it around to his disciples and he said, take and eat this and every time you do, I want you to remember me. And then he took a cup, again, pretty common element on the table. And after he'd given thanks, he passed it to his disciples and said, "Take and drink. Every time you do, I want you to remember me." And I have to believe that in that moment, they didn't really understand what he was talking about, but there was a moment afterwards where they went, "Oh, this is what he's talking about." And they remembered not just him and his ministry, but they also remembered his death and his resurrection because the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection puts you as a conqueror over death and what else? Sin, sin. So that thing that you're carrying around with you, that thing that even David had, the man after God's own heart, the pinnacle of what we would say a follower of God, if he can fall, any one of us can, and he did, and so can we. But we have grace and we have mercy in the name of Jesus. And every time we take these elements, we remember that fact. Here's the thing. Facts don't care about your feelings. So however you're feeling today, the fact of the matter is there is a God in heaven who loves you. And he likes you. And he has great things in mind for you. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so good to us. You're so good to us. You give us these great stories in your word about people who aren't so different from us at all. And yet, you continually show your mercy and your grace and your holiness and your hope and your love and all of it. That's just the kind of God that you are. And I'm so grateful for that. And so, Lord, as we um, sing, and as we take these elements, I pray, Lord, that, Lord, I pray that you would um, just spend some more time with us in a very real way. As Sophia prayed, we want your presence more than anything else, and may we experience your presence through these elements. Wesley called these a means of grace and and I just pray that each one of us would experience a little bit of grace today, a little bit of what you have uh, available and what you have in store for each person. Holy Spirit, as always, you're welcome here. Um, We declare that we're gathered in your name and since there's more than two of us, we know with confidence by your word that you are here too. So Holy Spirit, come do the work that only you can do.